Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Austin is adapting to and building the future in real time. I'm Michael Scharf. We are exploring and driving our transformation into the next innovation powerhouse. I'm Jason Scharf. I'm a bio-researcher at UT to the assembly line worker at Tesla, from the musician on 6th Street to the coder at Dell. And with the founders, funders, and early employees of the next great startup, we are all Austin Next. Bringing back the woolly mammoth, computer-aided design for biology? Is this a sci-fi novel or just a taste of what's going on at the intersection of biology, technology, and Austin? Two of the superpowers we talk about for our region are that one, we are living in the future, and two, the power of and. Those strengths are fully on display with our next guest, Ben Lamb, CEO and founder of Colossal Biosciences, founder and board member of Form Bio, and a serial technology entrepreneur driven to solve the most complex challenges facing our planet. For over a decade, Ben has built disruptive businesses that future-proof our world. In addition to leading and growing his own companies, he's passionate about emerging technologies, science, space, and climate change. Active in angel investing, incubators, and startup communities, Ben invests in the software and emerging tech spaces and is deeply engaged in the technology, defense, and climate change communities. Prior to Colossal, Ben served as the founder and CEO of a number of companies, including Hypergiant, an enterprise AI software company focused on critical infrastructures, space and defense, Conversable, the leading conversational intelligence platform that helps brands reach customers through automated experiences, which was acquired by LivePerson, and Chaotic Moon, a global creative technology powerhouse which was acquired by Accenture. Ben was also the co-founder of Team Chaos, a consumer gaming company acquired by Zynga. Ben Lamb, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Can you walk us through your entrepreneurial history and how that intersects with Austin and the Austin ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, you know, I was born in Austin uh, and spent, you know, it, it, it's one of those cities that's hard to, it, it's like constantly brings you back in, even if you, if you leave it. So I was born in Austin, spent my first six years on this planet in Austin, left Austin with my family for a while, then moved back to Austin. And then, you know, you know, from there over a, a period of time, I, I built four different companies uh, in Austin, starting first with an e-learning company, uh, then a mobile company, then a conversational intelligence and in, in game, a gaming company, then a conversational intelligence platform. And then my last company before starting Colossal, um, you know, I, I it was we had offices in Washington, D.C., Austin, and Dallas pre-pandemic. So I was splitting a lot of my time between Dallas and Austin. And and now I find myself still putting a lot of time between Dallas and Austin with Colossal. Okay. I've looked at your background. I see a lot of different companies. I see gaming. I see mobile. I see SaaS. I see AI. And now the pivot to bio. How'd that happen? Well, I'm really curious. And maybe I'm ADD. But, um, uh, you know, and, and so I, I love new market sectors. And I love learning new things. Um, I'm also really fortunate to have great partners, great co-founders that have ideas in different sectors. I constantly love 
you know, to learn from them. I constantly love to, you know, uh, find new, new challenges. Um, I actually didn't mean to start well, Colossal in its current form. I thought that I would build a, a, a software company around synthetic biology. And I reached out to, you know, the father, arguably the father of synthetic biology, George Church. And because of that insatiable curiosity, you know, good thing and bad thing that I have, I asked him, I was like, what else you working on in the lab? And he started telling me about everything. And then his last moment was almost this like Steve Jobs, one more thing where he was like, oh, and we also have this really interesting project where we're uh, working to bring back woolly mammoths to combat climate change, save the world and make billions of dollars in carbon credits. And I was like, wait, what? And so it, it was one of those hooks where it's like, I got all my answers for what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I got um, a, a lot of that feedback. So so I'd say most of my journey has been like that, where it's like, I'll be asking questions or I'll be with a co-founder, you know, a friend that turns into a co-founder or whatever that, that it's like, oh, well, this is an interesting sector or we should go do this. And so it's a little bit of, you know, uh, my journey's kind of been a little bit of a mismatch between, you know, uh, ideas that I've come up with or ideas that I've like just stumbled upon with, you know, people that are much smarter than me. So when I look at the bio opportunity and, and my background has been all in life science, so this is an area I know well. And so I guess it's, it's amazing to see the number of companies that have spun out of a church's lab and kind of spread yeah. across everything. I think for us in Austin, the advantage to take this kind of convergence point of the horizontal technology and biology is really our sweet spot. And I think Colossal and Form Bio are at the heart of that. Can you walk us through a little bit what those two companies are and how you see them intersecting with Austin? Yeah, and, and, that, and I think it also, I think it's definitely Austin, but I think it's br the broader Texas ecosystem. It's like, oh, and we also have this really interesting project where we're uh, working to bring back woolly mammoths to combat climate change, save the world, and make billions of dollars in carbon credits. And I was like, wait, what? And so it, it was one of those hooks where it's like, I got all my answers for what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I got uh, a, a lot of that feedback. So so I'd say most of my journey has been like that, where it's like, I'll be asking questions or I'll be with a co-founder, you know, a friend that turns into a co-founder or whatever that, that it's like, oh, well, this is an interesting sector or we should go do this. And so it's a little bit of, you know, uh, my journey's kind of been a little bit of a mismatch between, you know, uh, ideas that I've come up with or ideas that I've like just stumbled upon with, you know, people that are much smarter than me. So when I look at the bio opportunity and, and my background has been all in life science, so this is an area I know well. And so I guess it's, it's amazing to see the number of companies that have spun out of a church's lab and kind of spread yeah. across everything. I think for us in Austin, the advantage to take this kind of convergence point of the horizontal technology and biology is really our sweet spot. And I think Colossal and Form Bio are at the heart of that. Can you walk us through a little bit what those two companies are and how you see them intersecting with Austin? Yeah, and, and, that, and I think it also, I think it's definitely Austin, but I think it's br the broader Texas ecosystem. You know, I felt for a long time, it was like just Houston, just Dallas, just Austin, San Antonio. But I really do feel like it more and more, it becomes more and more truly a Texas melting pot. Uh, you know, being from Austin and built, you know, four companies in Austin, I'm very partial to Austin. But but at least, that, at least that's what I'm seeing now. And so, yeah, I feel like we have, you know, if you look at biology and, and you look kind of like the curve where it's going, you know, I feel like a lot of technologies in the biology sector, specifically around software and some even robotic process automation, 
feels like where enterprise software was in the you know late 90s. Like it's got bad user interfaces. It's got a lot of system integration issues that don't work together. Uh, you have a publishing model that doesn't necessarily, that, that rewards a publisher parish model in academia that doesn't always encourage as much collaboration as there probably should be. Uh, you know, even with even with the work that we're doing with with um, Colossal, we see that you know with some of the even ancient DNA uh, out there, which I'll, I'll which I'll talk about. But so I really feel like Austin and then in the broader Texas ecosystem has a lot of the right components uh, that, when applied uh, to the biology lens, can be a complete game changer. Whether it's synthetic biology, biotech, uh, or just you know other types of of healthcare, and so the two companies that that we've started, uh, one is Colossal. Uh, and and, and form bio bio spun out of Colossal. And Colossal is, uh, to our knowledge, the world's first de-extinction company. So, uh, you know, we're we're working on uh, building technologies to bring back extinct species for ecosystem restoration. Uh, And along that journey, though, uh, we're developing uh, two kind of subsets of technologies, one that are conservation focused. And so our hope is, is that all of those technologies are uh, you know uh, subsidized and free for the world, and you know help empower conservationists to be better and 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 protect you know existing biodiversity even more. And then the second fold is kind of where Form Bio falls. You know, on the path to the extinction, we're building technologies uh, for you know uh, analysis, uh, sequencing, editing, functional assays, extra development kind of all the way kind of through the stack of you know the rheology and stem cell reprogramming. And and so when we find software, wetware, or hardware that has applications of human healthcare, because Colossal is myopically focused on de-extinction and species preservation, but we are working in mammalian cells. Um, you know, we will spin those companies out, mirror the cap table, make sure we have the right management team and infrastructure and funding behind it to make it be successful. And so Form Bio is our first technology spin out. It's a software platform. Given my background, Kent's background, Andrew's background, it probably makes sense that it's a software platform, but we built it internally uh, to, to use on all the projects for uh, our de-extinction efforts. And then uh, as we started having conversations with different universities, it became very clear that they would love to use our, our some of our software and technologies for uh, other research, whether it was molecule design or cancer research. And so it was a first you know, we, we kind of got, um, you know, independent market feedback from a lot of our research partners that they would love to use it for things other than what we were collaborating with them on. It was a pretty clear path for us to to spin that out. So coming out of the genomic sequencing, I, I used to work at Illumina and knowing that oh, the, awesome. yeah, the bioinformatics now is the bottleneck. We're getting faster and faster sequencing, easier yeah. workflows on that side. But then yeah. it just slams into the wall of the software of saying, okay, do we have the either the processing power or just the tool set? Like, can it be easier to be understanding of what it is that we're looking at without being, you know, having to staff up 50 bioinformaticists? Well, and, yeah. And, and then also that bridge between uh, bench scientists and uh, computational biology cores, right? Because it's like, you know, to your point, we want to put those that power in the hands of, of bench scientists so that then computational biology course can focus on even bigger issues, right? But what's so crazy and interesting to me is that some of the turnaround times that we were seeing for our scientists to truly understand what they were looking at in their data is like weeks and months. And we're like, wait, we can't wait weeks and months between every experiment. That's that's absolutely great to talk. 
And so you're talking, you're saying that biology is slow and inefficient in the way that we've been studying it and, and innovating on it. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And academia has the exact right model for, to encourage scientific discovery too. Oh, then we'll get into the, the clinical side and how fast they, you know, how fast hospitals and doctors actually uh, uptake new technology. You know, it's, yeah. it's like the ice age. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very plasticine in this and it's, in it's uh, nature. But I, I do think that, uh, I, I do think that Illumina probably has, you know, some of the best tools out there, but even some of these other, you know, sequencing and next gen sequencing or current gen sequencing companies that, that we're also collaborating with in, ad, in additional Illumina, you know, and I, I would say Illumina's tools are are, are perfect and they, they, they obviously are focused very much on sequencing, right? But all, even just the other sequencing companies don't really even have anywhere near the technology stack that Illumina has, right? Just because they are the 800 pound gorilla in, in the category. So when you when you look at that and, and you and you see mass market opportunity all the way across the stack, it's something that you know uh, we decided to uh, expand upon what we built for Colossal uh, and turn it into its own product. No, and I think that's something that the fact that we're using the term technology stack and biology that's one of the big shifts. I mean, you wouldn't have heard that term. 10 years ago, no way. Five years ago, it was only, it was just, here are the things that I'm using. But now we think about, especially as you bring in synthetic biology, okay, we're understanding, now we're going from read to write, here are the, here's the application space that we're able to do. And it really gets us to this, from this change of, hey, I'm doing research that takes years to understand to now, uh, it's an engineering problem. I can go try to yeah. solve it. I, I was on. I was on a call late last night um, with a uh, candidate that, that we're bringing in that's working on some of our placental interface work. Uh, <laughs> there are certain words and phrases that I never thought in my lifetime I would ever say, like placental interface work together. And and I was like, look, you know, here's where we are. That's how we're evaluating. And this is, these are the internal projects that we're working on on, on our ex euro development systems. And, you know, but I, I love to, you know, I, I actually kind of love critics because you, you learn a lot more from a critic than you do from someone's like, that's amazing. <laughs> Cause that kind of stops there. Right. right. That could be amazing. <laughs> and so, um, so you learn a lot. And so I always ask in, in these interviews, like, what, what do you think's wrong? What, what do you think we're absolutely doing wrong? Right. Or, or how would you approach this? And, and so I asked this guy last night and he kind of echoed exactly what, what uh, you said, Jason, he's like, well, this isn't really a biology problem. We actually understand it. We understand it on Carnegie scale. We understand how it works. We understand all of the, the different uh, chemicals and, and, and kind of like, uh, for the most part, where they where they kind of stage gate these systems. But they're like, he's like, it's really just an engineering problem. And this is a biologist. This is a, this is a developmental wow. biologist told me this from North Carolina that, that we are sending an offer to. And he, he, uh, he literally told me, he's like, he's like, this is just an engineering problem. It's just, it's just work. And, and, and what I'm finding, you know, kind of like what you what you said about technology stack is what I'm finding is some of the best, what I personally believe makes, and, and once again, I'm probably biased coming from a soft, from a some hardware, but mostly software technology background, right? So I'm probably biased in this, but what I think really makes people like George Church and other people in, in some of these other big, massive scientists uh, so successful that, that have been so successful not just in academia and in discoveries, but also in commercial avenues, is that they're biologists with a system uh, designer uh, lens to them. Right. And I feel I, I, we've worked with a lot, kind of like to your comment on, on technology stack, you know, there's a lot of incredible biologists that we've hired that are so focused on this like one thing, right? Like we are, we are a um, transcription factor 
girl or guy that focuses on what is the right cocktail for stem cell reprogramming in X, but they don't look at the entire system of how that applies, right? And so, so I think that that things like systems engineering and looking at in systems design as it applies, you know, to technology stacks through the lens, lens of biology create will create continued opportunities. But I'm starting to hear that. Like I like to joke. Someone asked me the other day. What's the hardest thing you've achieved at Colossal? And I was like, well, we reprogram biologists to work in Scrum and Agile. We to Scrum and Agile formats. I was like, we use Jira. And to me, that was harder than some of the other, you know, like the computational analysis between in the 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 assembly of ancient DNA and the the computational analysis behind that, the functional assays on on the on the genes and in, in, in the, some of the multiplexing and cell toxicity stuff is actually easier than that problem. Ch- change management is harder than math and science a lot of the times right it, it really it is and we are very fortunate I, I joke because it took a while to get people in the rhythm but they but in fairness the team really adopted it because they they saw like when you start looking at system not just my part and you look at how it flows into you know you know you know agile like you know systems so we we organize everything at colossal in pods so and then we have some cross-functional pods so it's it's very it's it's very product focused and you know in in how we organize our biology work so i worked at uh, medtronic diabetes way back in the day and i had a conversation with the uh, the chief medical officer there and i think it was really getting to me to understand how we weren't looking at systems biology and that was a problem. We had this wonderful conversation about obesity drugs and why they keep failing. And of course, the reason they keep failing is from a a metabolic point of view, and I'm making up the number, there are like 12 pathways that deal with obesity. Of course, when we were making a therapeutic, it tends to be targeting one or two. Okay, if it's targeting one or two of 12 things, that's not actually going to solve the problem. That's why we're seeing so very little kind of use case in that. And I think biology at it, you know, there was a, a podcast I was listening to, like, we don't really even understand the, the general idea of what the cell is and has it all mapped out where we're just thinking yeah. about proteins now. And so we, it's not as kind of straightforward and in a place that we can understand it well enough to apply this. And only now as we have some of the tool sets that makes it easier, whether it's genomic sequencing, whether it's CRISPR or et cetera. And now with AI and possibly quantum stuff coming on, we can start attacking these problems at a system level. I, I, I could agree more. And, you know, th- there's so much to understand, but I do feel like we are truly at the doorstep of like the uh, gene therapy promises of the 90s. And I feel like synthetic biology is that I feel that like while I'm we're seeing incredible stuff, like we saw, obviously, the, the response uh, to, to the, the pandemic with, you know, mRNA vaccines. We we are actually applying that some of that those technologies uh, and, and methodologies to some of our conservation work with with elephants with, for EEHV and some other things. But what's incredible to me is I'm starting to see lots of you know peer reviewed scientific breakthroughs at a faster and faster rate um, in areas you know like um, I, I think you I, I forgot the name of the company but um, you know it's a husband and wife couple and they they just you know boldly said we're seeing some really great early results on our applications of some of this to targeted cancers mm-hmm. uh, on a much broader rate than like this one, one exactly. You know, when you say targeted cancer, it was like this one small variant and this right. one 
Yeah, like, you know, so that like that was kind of more like the 90s gene therapy model, right? And now it's kind of, you know, moved into something that I think can be more, have more broad applicability. So I'm super excited about it. You know, when you're working on a project like Colossal, you have to be a systems designer because, you know, if, if you if you just get uh, your targeted, you know, uh, cells that you have to then go edit, you know, that, that does not make a mammoth or thylacine or other species. There's a lot more to the, to the, uh, to the ingredient list and, and to, to get to that cake. And so, but we are excited about some of the breakthroughs that, that we're making. Like we, uh, we, we filed a, a bunch of really interesting patents that we think have applications to human IVF to, to increase uh, viability of embryos. And we were, you know, if you, if you look at like cryogenics or you look at the IVF market or the, even the surrogacy market, it's just it, for humans, it just continues to go up. Right. And so uh, people are having kids later in, in later in life, you know, um, same sex couples, transgender couples, others are, are, are looking for additional kind of options. You know, there's whole companies now that are focused on gametogenesis. So I, I really think that some of the technologies that, that we can, that can do not only will help us. Uh, you know, with our conservation and de-extinction efforts, but I think they can really help. You know, I think they're interesting market monetizable opportunities, but I think they can really help, right? And so, like anyone that's gone through the IVF process, it's a painful. You know, I, I have not gone through it, but a lot of people that I know have. It's a very painful process, and it's not. It. it I don't think it necessarily works as advertised as fast. I know it's come a long way, but um, but but I think that even some of the stuff that we're doing, just because we're working in a variety of mammalian cells and embryos ensuring and doing so much we have a whole embryology lab that's focused on uh you know laser-based somatic cell nuclear transfer and so it's like doing some really interesting things that that you know we, we think some of those applications um you know could be really helpful to, to human health care well and i want to understand i think it's a, this is a good time to kind of talk about business models i think one of the things that either it's synthetic biology or just this tech bio convergence is it opens up new types of models right so form bio as a software tool Okay, the model makes, you know, it's a pretty standard model of, of, of software tools, but you talked about your conservation efforts with Colossal being, you know, trying to be free and, and helping, you're spinning out human health care. So I think the billion dollar question here is, what's the business model then for a company like Colossal? Yeah, so, you know, uh, it, it, it's multiple, it's multiple phases, right? And so, you know, this is not a short journey that we're on. Uh, that was kind of a the biggest fundamental shift that I had to to do, because, you know, when people, you know, I feel like entrepreneurship is not for the faint part. <laughs> and so having people, you know, tell you you're crazy or tell you no is something that I've heard, you know, since I was 21 years old. So um, pretty used to it by now. And what's interesting for me is, you know, the one of the biggest shift that I had with my methodology is I'm very intellectually curious, as I talked about earlier. And so I tend to look for new, interesting opportunities. I get bored easy. So th this is a long-term commitment, you know? So I, I spend a lot of time soul searching. I'm like, do I want to go heavy all in on, you know, so make other investments and have spin outs like form bio, but do I want to go so all in on something that has this long of, of timeline? And, and I kind of preface the monetization side of like that, because that that's also our view on the monetization. And, and we've been very transparent with our investors I mean, and we just have incredible investors like, you know, Thomas Toll and Jim Breyer and others, Tim Draper, that have just been really supportive of us. You know, they've invested in every round. They're very supportive of, of what we're trying to achieve. But, you know, we look at this as akin to the moon landing, right? And so, like, there's massive technologies that kind of get, got spun off from that. Like, some of those 
fundamental technology to allow this conversation to happen, right? And so, you know, that that's the form bio model, which is a component, you know, to our to our business. Doesn't generate revenue, but it creates lots of asset appreciation for all of our investors as we spin out these technologies, right? Um, uh, secondly, you know, we we have created over forty billion media impressions uh, with ninety eight percent positive or neutral feedback since launch. That's massive. I mean, that is from a consumer perspective, right? Because I've done some stuff in entertainment. That's insane. It's insane numbers, it's like Super Bowl numbers, right? And so narratives matter. Yeah, and so um, you know, and, and I think that people are really engaged and excited about what we're doing. But I think it's really important that we that that we continue to be transparent. And so you know, Thomas Stoll is our you know largest uh, investor. Uh, and he was, you know, one of the big supporters of this project initially and continues to be, you know, his big, his big ticket to us was, you know, uh, legendary pictures also did reboot Jurassic Park into Jurassic World. Right? So that is not what we're doing. So sometimes I get asked that question. So I just want to get ahead of it. But, um, but what was interesting is that, you know, just like if you look at like, you know, the Planet Earth series, you look at all these things, there's a huge opportunity for us to be transparent, educate, but also make money on kind of the media consumer side of the business. Mm. And, and then, you know, what, what's interesting is like, we're starting to work with governments, you know, um, you know, we'll, we'll make some announcements next year around uh, some of our government partnerships. But like, you know, our goal is to rewild these species, there's Eden bonds, carbon credits, you know, like the carbon credit market alone, is a $200 billion market uh, forecasted to move to, you know, 2.7 trillion in the next five years. Uh, and you've got, you know, the, the Paris Agreement, which everyone's, which I think most people are familiar with, it requires that 66% of those efforts are nature-based solutions, preventing deforestation, reforestation, rewilding. And so all of the animals that we work on, we want to rewild uh, back into, into nature, right? And so um, we want to make sure that they have kind of their, their, their place back in nature. And then some of the technologies that we're developing have massive application to biodiversity and biodiversity banking and helping current nations, you know, handle their biodiversity because over time we're building this de-extinction toolkit. And so we think there's some really interesting, uh, you know, we've worked with some of the big consulting firms and others. And what we found is that there's some, you know, multi-billion dollar a year market opportunities around some of the rewilding of these species uh, outside of the technology stack that you can use with countries. And so, uh, but that's a very long-term focus, right? And so like, you know, we, we will get to mammoths, uh, we hope, by 2027. Uh, but it's going to take five to six years before we can really start to rewild them and start to reap the benefits of that. So, so that's a longer timeline uh, along the way than than I have typically worked in. I typically build something, find some <laughs> other stuff interesting, someone wants to buy the other thing. And yeah, so. I want to pull on a string in terms of the uh, the work you're doing in the climate area and under the Paris Accords and the like, because that's something I work on as well. And Talk to me about the efforts you guys are doing in terms of deforestation and uh, reforestation. Yeah, so so we are we at Colossal are not doing anything on deforestation, <laughs> but we're also not doing anything. We we directly aren't doing anything with reforestation. Um, kind of the the two species that we have announced publicly, the bully mammoth and the the Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine, have different kind of components. Kind of in that in that climate outside of biodiversity credits has a they have different strategies for ecosystem restoration. So we're working very closely with uh, the former Lieutenant Governor in Alaska, the head of Fish and Wildlife in Alaska, the largest landowner, the private owner, the second largest indigenous people group there to really kind of build the right consortium, uh, you know, to figure out, you know, even though, even though, you know, we're 10 plus years out from putting, you know, 
uh, mammoths back into the Arctic. Um, you know, what is what what is that process? How, how do you go through that process of rewilding? How do we make sure that we take people along, have people along the journey with us? We're not looking for permission. We're looking uh, for collaboration. And so um, so in, in, in the case of the mammoth, it's all about Arctic rewilding removing the coniferous trees and, and and kind of like restarting the uh arctic grassland grassland or steppe ecosystem which we can talk more about and then um to your to your uh you know preventing deforestation question you know that's where i think that thylacines can be massively helpful so you've got you obviously have things like tropic downgrading that you have which is a process where when you if you remove a keystone species from an environment specifically a, a predator in the case of the the Tasmanian tiger, the entire ecosystem kind of falls apart. It, we, we've seen it over and over again. Yellowstone kind of made, uh, you know, reintroduction of wolf, their their project of, of reintroducing wolves after 70 years of their absence in 1995, tr- uh, you know, created tremendous results. And it was an incredible achievement for showing that humanity can play a part in rewilding ecosystems back to their, their natural uh, um, instance by returning species that we we eradicated from them right and so it turns out nature kind of had it right first uh and then we can just kind of put things back and say we're sorry but, but what's interesting is that you know when you have a species like you know the tasmanian tiger not only can it help in that kind of yellowstone example where you have kind of this like tropic downgrading effect that that, that occurs separately um, you know, it also, I think, will really encourage, you know, the, the uh, folks in Tasmania and in Southern Australia to protect more land. And so that protects from deforestation. Right. And and so, you know, there's com- there's companies in in Africa that I don't know if they're nonprofits or not, but they um, uh, the non-government organizations that are that are essentially uh, working to help protect more and more land with private funding. But in partnership, because of what they're doing to preserve that, they're also getting, you know, carbon credits around that, right? And so so as it relates back to the thylacine, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity if, if we say, look, we're, we want to reintroduce, you know, three to 5,000 th- thylacines back in, into Tasmania. But, you know, as a part of our role in that, we want you to protect more of that land, so that it doesn't move to agriculture or into the logging industry, which Tasmania is pretty famous for. And so, um, yeah, so I'm sure we'll have, you know, like, you know, lobbyists from people that want to destroy stuff calling us, um, but uh, are calling people about us. But um, but yeah, so, so so those are the things that we're doing. But but what's most important is that we do it in collaboration with governments, with nonprofits and conservation groups and indigenous people groups over a long period of time. And so just being able to like work in that time frame because you know, like I just got back from Tasmania about two months ago and then I was a month ago, I was in Alaska. And, and so even though we are, you know, a, a ways away from actually putting animals back in the ground there, we're starting those conversations now. And then we're, we're looking at, you know, okay, how can we also get support, um, you know, and subsidies and other things that to, to kind of help those efforts, you know, based on the achievements that we make. Yeah, what we found is these are really long-term projects. You know, nothing mm-hmm. happens for the first five years. Yeah, exactly. And so I was fortunate enough in, in uh, or sorry, in, in Southern Australia to be, I was lucky enough to be able to reintroduce the 21st Tasmanian devil back into the wild, which is, you know, an endangered species. Uh, mostly been going endangered species, endangered due to this kind of facial t- tumor disease. And they, there's this incredible group called Aussie Ark has isolated 
a population of with the right amount of genetic diversity uh, from the population in, in Tasmania in uh, southern Australia where uh, they don't have the facial tumor disease. And so uh, that, that, that's been eradicating some of the, a lot of a large, not just eradicating, but, you know, fully decimating parts of the population in Tasmania, you know, even though they've got, you know, breeding pens and they've kind of been working through it very, very thoughtfully, you know, over a very long period of time. And, and they kind of stage gate them and move them to individual, you know, bigger pens, bigger enclosures. You know, I got to reintroduce, the 21st one. Right. And so that it's not like that's been a multi-year process. Right. It's not like, you know, sometimes people think about rewilding and then they get scared. They're like, oh, my gosh, you're just going to open the gates and put 3000, you know, Tasmanian tigers back in the wild or or a thousand mammoths. It's like, no, it actually takes quite a long time to make a thousand mammoths. So um, we're <laughs> that's not exactly how it works. And so the fear in those comments almost excites me based on their assumption of success at that scale. <laughs> So. I, I want to circle back to something that you you'd said earlier. So Texas has not historically been touted as a biohub. Houston's obviously had a lot going for it, especially on the, you know, the Texas Medical Center. But I yeah. think we're really starting to hit our stride. You mentioned, you know, Jim Breyer and Tim Draper uh, as people who are investing in you. They both have one, I think, moved to, you know, investing more in Texas. And then I know Jim specifically has gotten a lot into bio you know, we moved here two years ago. I 100% agree with you. And I think that this is really going to be the next big uh, biohub. As someone kind of building multiple companies in this space, what are the gaps that you see that we need to fill in this sector? Is it talent, connectivity, funding, infrastructure? What's going on? Well, I would, I would say we definitely, we have the talent from a software, AI, and technology perspective. I, I truly believe we have the talent. I think we have great multidisciplinary talent. I think Texas is an incredible place to build companies, very business-friendly state. For us, you know, Texas and Australia are the two best places in the world to do genetic engineering with animals, thanks to the cattle industry, right? And so it kind of like wrote the book or some of the stuff that we're doing. I, I don't think they knew that we'd be doing this, but at least it helped. And then, um, and, 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 but infrastructure is, is hard, you know, like we, we have been fortunate in Dallas, 